Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today I'm joined by political pundit and strategist Matthew Dowd. Over the course of his career, he's been uniquely identified as a Democrat, a Republican, and now an Independent. And just a little background here, uh, Matthew and I have known each other a long, long time, I think maybe going on 20 years. But before we started working together, you worked for Dick Ephart, Lloyd Benson, and obviously the legend, Lieutenant Governor Bob Bullock down in Texas. You and I worked together, I believe, on the 2000 and 2004 George W. Bush for president campaigns, and then more closely probably in the 2006 reelect campaign for Arnold Schwarzenegger out in California. But as you know, we got through Arnold in 2008, you left the GOP probably just at the right time, became an independent. And since then, you've just recently left being an ABC News political contributor, taught at the LBJ school there in Austin, and is, of course, also a New York Times bestselling author. So, Matthew, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Reed. So, you know, Matthew, it's hard to believe that you and I go back 20 years to the George W. Bush campaign in 2000, um, compassionate conservatism and all of that. At least at the time, it felt like a domestic policy campaign between Bush and Al Gore that was obviously overtaken by events with 9-11 once he took office. But even in 2004, in the context of then Iraq and the global war on terror, we were still talking about policy issues, whether or not it was marginal tax rates or whatever the case might have been. And in Arnold world, you know, you think about in California back then, at the time, you know, Arnold signed AB 32, which was a sweeping greenhouse gas piece of legislation. The last month of the campaign, we campaigned more for infrastructure bonds than we did for governor, because at that point we were pretty far up. And now we look two decades later at the Republican Party that you and I, I think, got to know pretty well from not only the inside, but pretty high levels. Where do you see the GOP now? I mean, our take, obviously, as you probably are aware, is it ceased to be a functioning small d Democratic Party and has really swung pretty hard towards authoritarianism. But as someone who's seen this both from the inside and as an analyst, where do you see it? I think the party as we once knew it is gone. I don't think it was a Donald Trump only effect. I think Donald Trump wasn't a cause of it, but a, an effect of how the party had changed. I think it's now occupied by a group of voters who are anti-science, anti-belief that everybody is created equal. And it seems just a means justify the ends party um, in any way, a culturally driven party to a large degree, who's, in my view, has lost pretty much all their principles completely. I don't think George W. Bush, the former person you and I worked for, including Arnold, would have any room in this party. I think they would both get booed at the RNC meeting. They would probably get booed at a CPAC meeting. I don't think Ronald Reagan would fit in this party. Definitely Ike Eisenhower and Bob Dole wouldn't fit in this party. So it's not the Republican Party that we all knew. Yeah, that's gone. You know, it's interesting you bring up the culture thing. Last week, Marjorie Taylor Greene and a bunch of other the wacko birds in the U.S. House put out this America First Caucus policy platform, which somebody spent a lot of time cutting and pasting different things into different places. But it talks about here, it's a, America is a nation with a border and a culture strengthened by a common respect for uniquely Anglo-Saxon political traditions. Now, you know, I don't know how much of that is true. I can tell you that, you know, at least one side of my family came over on a big cold boat to Ellis Island in the early 1900s, escaping the pogroms of Western Russia and Eastern Poland. So I don't think Anglo-Saxon political traditions were on their minds when they got to New York. But it seems to me that, you know, there's this willingness and desire on the part of those voters who now are very active, right? I mean, I feel like, Matthew, when, when you and I worked on these campaigns, 
the folks who were like the social conservative guys, no one really understood like who they were, like what they were there for. Like we understood that they represented a constituency that was important to an election, but it wasn't like I was going to hang out with Gary after work. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes total sense. I mean, obviously for me, when I went to work for George W. Bush in 99 for the first time, I'd not been a Republican, but I believed in his sort of ideas that he did as governor, which was how do we bring the state together? How do we do things that make changes in education and our economy and all of that? I never felt comfortable in the social conservative circles because I thought there was a lot of judgment and a lot of they've already decided who was right and who was wrong, regardless of it. I never felt George W. Bush felt comfortable in that, though he obviously built a campaign and appealed in some ways to that constituency. It never struck me that he was very comfortable. I don't think Laura Bush was ever comfortable in that constituency. And so, you know, like you said, you know, my great great grandfather came here as a 17 year old Irish kid in 1849 and was not wanted when they first got here, but made a life for his family and the generations to come. But I think the party today has decided they don't like the way America is growing and changing in the manner it's growing and changing with increased non white populations, with increased different languages, with increased different religions. And I think all of that has created an anger that the country that they think they wanted or want no longer exists. And what do they do? They go out of their way to try to reverse things, to go back to a time that's long gone. If it ever existed in the first place. I mean, we have to confront America's story, both in its good point and its bad points. I think that at every moment in American history, when there was a large scale change in the what the electorate looked like, there was a reaction by a percentage of the population, usually about a third, against that. So that occurred in the 1800s, that occurred in the 1900s, they fought civil rights, they fought women's rights, they fought it all along the way. As America changed, there was a reaction to that, the Chinese Exclusion Act. I mean, there's been a reaction. But I think one thing different today, one political party, one of the two main legacy parties, has been taken over by this constituency. Before, in America, there were elements of the Democratic Party that were segregationist and white supremacist. There were elements of the Republican Party that were more white supremacist. But it never was contained wholly within one party and dominated one party. That's what's different today. So we have one of the two dominant political parties today that is dominated by people that believe in white nationalism. And that is a very different point in American history. So last week on the show, we discussed Tucker Carlson, you know, extolling the dangers of the white replacement theory, which as Schmidt was on the deal and goes back to the fact that this was like a 19th century French thing, you know, concerned about whether or not it was folks coming from Algeria or wherever it was, but that basically the white people were going to be pushed out. Of course, as Stuart likes to say when we talk about this, it's that there are more non-white people under the age of 18 than there ever have been in this country, and they're not likely to turn white when they turn 18. And so it is one of those things where it's a demographic thing, but it's not, you know, this idea that somehow the hordes have crossed over and are taking over the country. It seems like that's to your point, is that that's the story they want to tell in order to, one, energize the base of these folks, right, which are the same people we probably sat across from in meetings, saw them as sort of a necessary component of the coalition, but not necessarily someone that was going to lead the coalition. And then the other half of that or the other side of that coin 
is scaring enough other people who don't necessarily agree with that to be just worried enough that their life or their lives of their children or potentially grandchildren are going to be different from what they expected. So, well, I don't really like what I see on the Republican side, but they're telling me enough about the Democrats that's just believable enough that worries me. So maybe I'll just stay on this side of the fence. I think that's true. But I also think there's a fear, and which is I understandable that as America changes, that as we add a more diverse population, that they're going to lose place, right? So there's this fear they're going to lose place. And then that then fear translates into anger when they have nowhere to go. They go to anger. What would normally happen in any leadership model is the leaders would then speak truth and say, you know, I can understand your fears and I can understand your anxieties, but it's not those people's fault. Here's what we have to do. And the Republicans are doing exactly the opposite of that. They're appealing to people's fears, they're appealing to people's anger, they're pointing out who they think is the enemy. It's not just people that are non-white, it's people that don't speak English in the way they want to speak English. It's people that are Muslims, it's people that don't have a faith. It's anybody that they think doesn't represent in their mind some ideal, and I know this sounds a lot like what happened in 1930s Germany, but whoever doesn't like stand for the ideal of what they think, quote unquote, an American is, that they, the leaders now are exacerbating the fears and anger by appealing to it. And that is actually an exceedingly dangerous thing. You know, that's a great segue. So obviously, as we tape this, we're just, a, you know, a day or so removed from the verdict up in Minnesota of former police officer Chauvin being convicted on all three counts of being responsible for the death of George Floyd last summer. And what we saw very quickly, whether or not it was from Fox News or OANN or Newsmax or any of the normal, what I call, you know, right wing media ecology was all cops should just resign. George Floyd had drugs in his system. George Floyd might have had a criminal history as if all of these things are okay that, you know, basically you can have summary execution of an American citizen because, you know, maybe they had trouble with law in the past, as opposed to the fact that someone was held responsible for their actions, which, as you know, was always a tenet of republicanism was personal responsibility. But now they're utilizing it as yet another, I don't want to call it a dog whistle because it's not, it's a bullhorn that, you know, these people are going to riot regardless of whether or not the officer was convicted. You know, Maxine Waters should not have done what she did. Joe Biden should not have said what he said. You know, this is all about them against us. We must protect our police at all times until and unless they do something we don't like, because it's a zero sum game. Rob, can we play the clip of Carlson last night? I just think that it was excessive yeah, and well, it shouldn't happen. And, and what I'd like the, to say, the guy who did it looks like he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. So I'm kind of more worried about the rest of the country, which, thanks to police inaction, in case you haven't noticed, is like boarded up. <laughs> so. That's more of my concern, well, but I appreciate you coming let, on. Ed Gavin, thank let, you. Let, nope, done. Thank you. All right, so Matthew, <laughs> the country is not boarded up. Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted last night that she felt like Washington, D.C. was a fortress and the streets were empty and everybody was afraid. And immediately everybody who lives in Washington, D.C. was like, I was out drinking last night. It's just not true. So they'll say whatever it is they're going to say. Now, if Derek Chauvin had been acquitted, it would have been the justice system working if there had been corresponding civic unrest, they would have said, see what's happening. So whatever the issue is, they'll take it to its worst 
eventuality because that's what they need, right? They need the fight. They need to trigger as many people as they can. You know, as someone who spent a lot of time at ABC, spends a lot of time in green rooms, really immersed in the sort of media ecology, what does that look like to someone like you who has had both a, not only a political aspect of it, but a professional aspect as you see this sort of ugly media evolving in the U.S.? Well, you know, I was struck as you was talking about this. I last night I was switching around channels to see coverage and see CNN and who they were talking to and MSNBC and who they were talking to and Fox. And I know this has been every time any of us do this, it's like the separate worlds. But in this instance, when a guy where the weight of evidence was so overwhelming that Chauvin was responsible for what happened and he abdicated his responsibility as a police officer, talk about a bad cop being held responsible. It was so striking. I I thought this was a moment. Okay, great. We have justice. The jury system work. The case was presented. We can be proud, even though there's been times in our history we, we haven't been proud of our justice system working. But the fact that Fox News has so now gone way over the deep end on this, they couldn't even celebrate or not even not celebrate. They couldn't even acknowledge Here's a justice system, a jury of our peers. They came to this conclusion. They can't even do that because they so define themselves in this way of representing a minority of the population in a matter that their only thing they can do is lie to their audience, right? And their audience is receptive to it. A portion of their audience is receptive to it. Again, they're supposed to be not only leaders in politics, but leaders in the media. The idea that Fox News is able to do that with a millions of people who pay attention to Fox News in a manner that still keeps them in their biases and prejudices, I think has been one of the main drivers of where we are today. And I've tried to trace this back, Reed, as I'm sure you have, to where all this began and how all this came to be. I have to acknowledge that one of the places is the rise of Fox News in the mid to late 90s and the domination of how Fox News has done that has contributed in many ways to where we are today. Let me ask you this, because now we have not only Fox, which has obviously been the flagship for decades, you know, the ONNs, the Newsmaxes, as I mentioned, but also, you know, I was looking at the top 200 Apple podcasts the other day, and the top 25, probably 16, 17 of them are right-wing voices, Dan Bongino, Mark Levin, you know, you name it. I mean, so they are a significant media presence. They take up a lot of space in the media ecology. So in today's world, is Fox a leading indicator or a lagging indicator? Do you think Tucker's trying to keep up or do you think he's trying to be the, for lack of a better way to put it, standard bearer? So I think Tucker's responding to an audience that he has and the audience that he wants to keep. He's irresponsible, but very attuned to an audience that he wants to keep. And obviously January 6th and the aftermath and acknowledgement of all of that and whether or not we had a fair election and whether it was a legitimate and all that is all part of this. I think he's responding irresponsibly to a group of people in the country who don't want to acknowledge reality. So he understands, I think, that market that he wants to appeal to that keeps him getting, you know, whatever it is, two and a half million people to listen to him out of a nation of 330 million people. So that's what I think he's doing. And all these other networks are trying to compete in that same space in It's not expanding, that space isn't expanding, but they're fighting over this group of voters who, you know, elected the Marjorie Taylor Greens, that nut in Colorado. Lauren Boebert. (laughs) Lauren Boebert, 
a number of other officials who seem to give money to people like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. And so that, I think, Reed, that combined with the polarization and the division and how people have moved and settled in the country and how we're defined with our political jurisdictions, those, I think, are two contributing factors because none of those people in a true swing group of voters could win. Josh Hawley could never win in a place like New Hampshire. Ted Cruz could never win in a place like Wisconsin. Marjorie Taylor Greene could never win in a swing district, but they're in districts or states that are right now dominantly red. So the only thing they have to appeal to is Republican primary voters. And once they get past that, it's very difficult in the way we're designed today to deal with it. The other part of this is, is we've had crazy people and outrageous people before in our past, but there were guardrails in our system. There were media guardrails and there were political guardrails. We've seemed to have lost all of those guardrails. Yeah. So I think it was interesting, you know, going back to this America First Caucus thing that Marjorie Taylor Greene was trying to push, I think it was last week. That was the only time in recent memory that Kevin McCarthy actually got upset and had to say something publicly where he disagreed with her. And I'm sure he hated to do it, right, because it will cause him no small amount of trouble within his caucus. But you know, the Taylor Greens, the Matt Gates, the Lauren Boberts of the world, there was a time when, you know, if McCarthy was any kind of leader, he would have told them to sit down, be quiet, or go sit in the cloakroom, or go out to the stand up and do whatever craziness you're going to do, but like, don't bring it here. And now he's just sort of totally capitulated to them. But the one thing I do want to note that you said, Matthew, you know, we talked to a lot of people, a lot of folks who are, you know, on both sides of the aisle, whether or not they're Democrats, you know, who've supported us, or Republicans who you know, would like to support us more publicly. And one thing I hear mostly from the Democratic side of the aisle is that the donor class is exhausted from last year. They did a lot, you know, whether or not it was to help Biden get elected, help hold the House, try and keep the Senate or take the Senate. And the one thing I've seen on the Republican side, I wonder if you see the same thing, is that there's no shortage of money, enthusiasm, momentum from people who give five bucks or people who give 500,000 bucks. And to your point, like Cruz, Hawley, Marjorie Taylor Greene, they all had incredible first quarter fundraising numbers. You know, the NRCC, the Republican House Campaign Committee, raised 44 million bucks in the first quarter of this year. So it seems to me that there might be exhaustion on one side, but there certainly isn't on the other. Well, you know, it's any fight for justice for the country or democracy, it can be exhausting at times. And I know even the people, the greatest leaders, the greatest people, the people that have done stuff, it can become exhausting to try to defend something that we think is so common sense and so constitutionally driven that you keep fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. When you're a Ted Cruz or a Josh Hawley or Marjorie Taylor Greene, you don't have to be responsible. You're not held to account for anything. Your own personal behavior or your public behavior, you're not held account for it as long as you represent some grievance involved. And if you represent that grievance in a time like this, blame everybody else without having to be held responsible for anything, it becomes an easier road to keep people motivated. Though I think come, you know, the 22 midterm election, I think people will understand again, they may be in the mode right now. I actually think that the trial verdict yesterday was a hopeful moment that our system in many ways works. But I, you know, I said about Marjorie Taylor Greene when she put that out, I actually think we should give her credit for being honest and transparent. I mean, I (laughs) actually think we should say, bravo, that they were honest and transparent about exactly who they are. I think what Kevin McCarthy was most upset about is that she told the truth. 
And she put something out about who the Republican Party really is. And I know Kevin McCarthy thought that's probably dangerous to be doing in a swing district. But, you know, it was basically I'm sure he told her, don't you know, don't tell that truth out loud anymore. And she did. And let's accept it for what it is. We all know it. But I think everybody, anybody listening or anybody in this, you know, the legacy of people that have fought for the more perfect union, the worst way to honor that legacy is to give up. And the best way to honor that legacy is to keep pushing forward. So let me ask you this, because this is a question that I think we get a lot from folks who either listen to this or email us. So in a vast majority of states now, we've already seen legislation like this pass in Iowa and Georgia changing the rules of voting, making it more difficult. Stuff has just passed, I believe, in Florida. It's on the march in Texas, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, all the places you'd expect. And now we saw there was a story in the New York Times by Reed Epstein that a number of these states are now not only you know making it more difficult or changing voting rules, they're also now clamping down on what they're calling anti-riot legislation. That, you know, if you go out and you demonstrate and, you know, violence breaks out and you are arrested for breaking a window or harming personal property or whatever the case might be, it's going to take away the potential for many state benefits, whether or not that's getting a state job, like they've said in Indiana, getting a student loan, like they've said in Florida. And so this seems to me to be, you know, a pretty nasty one, two in not only making it potentially more difficult to vote, but also you know, making it much more difficult for people to be willing to go out and sort of redress their grievances against their government and show civil disobedience. Because if a fight breaks out, even if you had nothing to do with it, and you happen to be there, so let's say a melee breaks out like we saw last summer when, you know, I, I believe that a lot of cops just took the license to go do things. Now you could be on the hook for some significant felonies. So how do we as Americans and as individual citizens start to push back on that when people who we duly elected are looking to take away sort of fundamental American rights? As you know full well, our country was founded on civil disobedience and every moment of change in our country's history that advanced us had civil disobedience. Every moment that pushed us forward to be a better country had civil disobedience. And then there's obviously there's the thing about like, you know, if somebody drives their car and runs over a protester, they're going to try to give them immunity or some pass on it if they, quote unquote, accidentally run somebody over in the midst of a protest. I mean, to me, I don't see how that constitutionally stands with the First Amendment that we have, the right to petition the government, the right to protest. But again, we have a party, a Republican Party that for 150 years stood for the Constitution and we fought a war over the Constitution of the United States don't seem to care about the Constitution anymore of the United States of America at all, which is amazing because they get their backs up every time somebody tries to, you know, say they want to expand the Supreme Court or add a state or whatever the thing happens to be. But they don't believe in the fundamentals of the Constitution. They believe in whatever is going to advance their political cause or their own personal ego in this. And so, again, in the end, it's going to be the people that either allow this or don't allow this. All of us who care about it can push and say and do and fight, but it's the voters and the average American that has to decide enough's enough. So let me ask you this. Um, I was in a debate with a friend of mine over the weekend, and they said, you know, you have to be careful. You know, the Republican Party is broken. It's small d, anti-democratic. It's illiberal. But if you kill it and you create nothing in its place, be careful that you might create the outcome you're not looking for. 
Now, I haven't spent a lot of time, Matthew, thinking about that, but is there a replacement for the Republican Party? Is this the you know long-awaited opportunity for independent voters, for independent candidates, for a third party or regional third parties to break through and say, you know, we're not Democrats, we're not crazy Republicans? Is this finally the time? Have we reached that tipping point? You know, I, I don't agree with whoever that was. I mean, the Republican Party, as we knew it, as I started this, is gone. But that represents, let's say, of all Americans, that represents 28, 27 percent of all Americans, which is the Republican Party as it exists today. It's not as if it's going to get worse. It can't get worse if all of a sudden it's like the Republican Party is broken and go away. The Republican Party it can't get any worse. You can't get any worse than an anti-constitutional, anti-democratic, nativist, white supremacist party. I don't think you can get worse than that. And people that have advocated an insurrection. I mean, I don't, how can you get worse than people that advocated an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol and seem to like discount anything that happened like it doesn't matter? I think that we're going to get to a point when either people decide, you know, I don't agree with everything in Democrats, but I can't tolerate this other. And so I'm going to become part of the Democratic Party, which may move the Democratic Party, which may keep the Democratic Party in a more moderate vein or something brand new starts. But I'm a person without a party today. Sure, me too. And so I don't know what the result is. You know, we're a country whose system is, seems to be set up on the idea of two political parties. Maybe the answer is people run, as you said, in a regional way and start to build a coalition. I mean, here's an example. Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins and a number of them could form a coalition abandon, you know, the Republican Party as it is and basically be the most powerful people and not say they have to side with Mitch McConnell or not say that, come together as a group and say, if there's five or six of them and say, you know, we're going to decide in which direction this goes. And that obviously takes leadership. They haven't done it. They seem to grasp after power more than principle in this time. But I don't understand why that hasn't happened, why there hasn't been five, six, seven, eight United States senators say, we're done. And we're going to group together as our own and people can appeal to us. But this is what we want. And this is the way it's going to be. Because, again, in a 50-50 Senate, you know, they could say, well, and one of us is going to be majority leader. Yeah, well, and to me, what will finally trip this, and I live here and I, I've been here for 30 plus years, as soon as Texas becomes a swing state and then it eventually will become a Democratic state, once that happens, then the whole game has changed with all its electoral votes, with all its congressional power, with everything about it, once Texas is no longer in the reliably Republican column, which it's getting there, maybe take an election or two, but it's getting there, that's a huge point of political change across the United States. Well, you know, from your lips to God's ears. Matthew, before we let you go, give me something that gives you hope. What's an optimistic look from Matthew Dowd as we're staring here today? So, as we've known each other, I'm always sort of hopeful and optimistic. I'm pessimistic in the short run. In the very short run, I'm optimistic in the long run. I think that the American voters, when you talk to them, are in a much different place than where the leaders are. The country, if you poll them on different issues, they pretty much coalesce in a very broad supermajority. So I think the country is in the right place, country writ large. I think our leadership is in the wrong place. And so in the short term, it's problematic. But in the long term, I think we move and fits and starts and we take two steps forward and one step back. And so that's what gives me hope. 
is where the American public is. So it's going to take time. People will have to be replaced. We'll have to fight, 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 fight and push. But I think in the long term, we'll end up in the right place. But it's certainly a dark night and a dark day in the short term. Well, I happen to agree with you. Before we let you go, Matthew, where can we find you online? Well, the best place is on Twitter, which is at Matthew J. Dowd, M-A-T-T-H-E-W, J. Dowd. So anything on Twitter, even when I write columns, I post them there. If I have other stuff I'm doing, I do it there. I've been appearing on some different networks once I left ABC just for fun. So best way is through Twitter. But I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful we're going to have another huge turnout in 2022 to keep turning the corner on the mess we're in. I hope you're right, and we will certainly be working alongside you to do that. For everyone out there, you can find me on Twitter, at Reed Galen. And until the next time, thanks for joining us. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Sinical and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Thank you.